I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to this week's episode of Good Faith Weekly. And Autumn and I are going to catch up here in just a moment and talk a little bit about the Good Faith Forum that was conducted this last Tuesday over racial justice. It was superb. We're also going to take a deeper dive as schools consider reopening in the fall and what schools are doing right and what schools are doing wrong. And then later in the episode, we're going to have a very special guest with us, Ann Nelson, who is the author of Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Are you worried that COVID-19 is going to put off your plans for theological education? The Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is offering a full schedule online this fall. Our approach to online education is unique, offering classes live and face-to-face via Zoom. At BSK, relationship is critical, and we are thrilled to be able to offer our Master of Divinity, Pastoral Care Certificate, and Rural Ministry Certificate this way. Learn more at bsk.edu. Autumn, how are things going in your world this week? Well, things are going, you know, about like they've been going for the past four months. Four Have we months. really been doing this for four months. Do you even remember what it was like pre-COVID? No, I don't. In fact, I'm, you know, reaching down to an Abbey and they're all sitting across from each other at the table. And I'm like, you're not probably social distance. What <laughs> well, are you doing? At least I'm they're wearing gloves. At least they're wearing gloves. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Although I did identify with Lady Grantham when she said, what is a weekend? Because truly, what is the weekend right now? Exactly. Exactly. Well, yes, How are doing? we're doing all right. Uh, entering into uh, the fourth month of this, still trying to figure out what's next for us. Uh, my oldest son graduated from college, as, as you know, um, hoping to move out to California soon. But who knows? I mean, California is one of the hot spots, L.A. in particular. Um, and so we're just kind of playing it week by week. We have no idea what uh, he's going to be doing and just feel sorry for all of these graduates who find themselves now with degree in hand, but unemployed, uh, a majority yeah. of them are across the the, the spectrum. So, you know, it's, and, and, and of course they're, they're not in this alone. So many of Americans, so many Americans are facing unemployment and uh, trying to figure out what's next for them. It's just such a weird time for many families across this world. And then my youngest son is thinking about going back to school, not thinking about it, planning on going back to school. Um, but his college is, instituting a new plan uh, that uh, dorm rooms now will be occupied by only one student instead of having uh, a roommate. Uh, They're going to be having rooms to themselves, automatic quarantine uh, as they come into classroom for 14 days. Uh, But the the, the problem with um, the residency is that they don't have enough rooms for all the students. So now they're having to enact Mm -hmm. a new kind of plan. So uh, major, a lot of students will be distance learning while other students are there on campus. But then there's going to be some classes that are going to be offered virtually. So you may be on campus, but taking a class virtually, I don't know what good that does. Might as well just stay here at home. But at any rate, it, uh, it, you know, is, he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. Most likely he's thinking about taking the fall semester off uh, and then uh, revamping in the winter. They've got a quarter system, so traditional uh, spring fall, spring, and summer semester. But at any rate, you know, we're doing well. Um, 
you know, just trying to, to find our oasis uh, here in our little neck of the woods and, and just try to make the best of it. But speaking yeah. of uh, back to school, um, a lot of, lot of conversations going across the country these days about students returning to the classroom, teachers returning to the classroom. What are you hearing on your end, Autumn? So as a former teacher, um, former elementary school teacher, my heart always aligns with teachers. I feel like especially public school teachers don't have much of a voice. And while I'm also hearing, you know, professors and folks in higher ed talk about how universities are making these sweeping, you know, these sweeping plans like you talked about, how it impacts them. They at least they have tenure. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, typically they get paid a little bit more than our, our public school teachers do. And there's been a lot of discord between teachers feeling like, revamping of the economy is being placed squarely on their shoulders and they're not being adequately, first of all, compensated Mm -hmm. and there's no plan to keep them safe and healthy. And then add into that, we're putting all of our kids inside of this classroom that no one's really thought about. You know, we've spent three months sort of wringing our hands and not wearing our masks and not be, I don't say we haven't been, but Mm -hmm. the general public here we are in, in a much worse situation from a public health standpoint than we were in March when they thought it was bad enough to shut down schools. So I'm just perplexed. You're absolutely right. You know, if only we had a federal department of education that could, you know, put together a plan and implement it across the country, working with state and local officials. I mean, boy, that would be just an incredible asset. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it would be, but, you know, here we are. No plan, no, no plan, leadership. No leadership whatsoever. In fact, the only thing that uh, local school districts and, and states are hearing from uh, the current administration is that if they do not reopen and reopen quickly, that there's a potential of losing federal funding, which seems illegal. Most likely that would be challenged in court to be found illegal. But nonetheless, that's what they're getting from their leadership, both from the president and from the secretary of education, that if they don't... Can we air quote education? Yes. Can we just... We we certainly can. Absolutely. Uh, But and, And so because of the lack of leadership coming out of Washington on this issue, the issue is left with state and local officials, and we're discovering that when it is left They're not competent. to those individuals, it creates really divisive uh, arguments, divisive tension within those communities. Now, there are some states that are absolutely doing it beautifully, and a lot mm-hmm. of those are states that were impacted by uh, coronavirus uh, early on. States like New York's, New York, Massachusetts, uh, Ohio, for example, who reacted in a very uh, wonderful way. Their state governments, uh, you know, tried to take uh, to, to take on this head on. Uh, really began to lock down things, made requirements of their citizens. And that's across the political spectrum, too. Uh, The Republican governor in Ohio did a fantastic job uh, addressing Mm -hmm. this uh, issue early on. And, of course, uh, both in um, 
in Massachusetts and, and New York as well. And so the reopening of the schools in those states seem to have a little, uh, a lot better plan in place uh, when kids show up in September. But there are other places that this debate is intensifying. We see it out in Orange, Cal, uh, Orange County in California, where the uh, the Orange County Board of Board of Education uh, is trying to force local school systems and districts into reopening, and local school districts are saying, "No, we're not following." Uh, mm-hmm. You know, your attempted mandate to make us reopening because. Uh, coronavirus is spiking in some of these areas and it'd be irresponsible uh, to send our kids and teachers back to school. And then, of course, here in the great state of Oklahoma, the debate uh, lingers. Our government, our governor was just diagnosed yesterday uh, as contracting uh, uh, coronavirus. Uh, He has pretty much mocked it the entire time, has not taken it seriously. Uh, It was... Hey, we have pictures of him over the weekend out and about shopping without a mask. Right. Uh, and so really uh, not leading by example. Uh, we do, uh, I do hope and pray that uh, he does not suffer because of this disease. I hope nobody suffers from it. But when you have leaders like this uh, who just thumb their nose at this virus and then end up getting it, uh, you know, it just, it, it makes you scratch your head. I mean, what kind of leaders do we have? And so even here in a local level in Nor- in Norman, Oklahoma, <laughs> we're having a debate and you watched some of the local uh, school board meeting the other night. So tell, tell our listeners a little yeah. bit about what you heard. I mean, I mean, like you said, Charles Dickens couldn't make this stuff up. No, he couldn't make this up. So here in Norman, you know, it's a it's a university town. Even though Oklahoma is pretty ruby red, Norman is typically purple to blue. Um, and we have a pretty diverse school board, and they've been pretty responsive. I'm my children go to public school right now, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I'm a vocal parent. I'm a supportive parent, and so I've emailed them my concerns, and so they were trying to they met together on Tuesday to make a plan for reopening schools. And in Norman, we have um, a mandatory mask mandate. So we're all supposed to be wearing our masks. And as we're watching the school board meeting that's being hosted on YouTube, there is a gentleman who is not masked, um, which is against everything science says to do to be safe. So how can someone who can't even practice safe public health practices be making decisions for how to safely open our schools that's you know one sort of juxtaposition so i of course needed to do a little bit of googling and figure out who this fellow was he's a local funeral director (laughs) so the local funeral director who's on the board of education is advocating that children and teachers do not wear masks in a classroom that's right he's also an anti-vaxxer so Wow. I just kept singing songs from Sweeney Todd in my head because <laughs> oh my this gosh. just seems like one of those situations to me. Oh my gosh. Like like you said earlier, I mean you just can't make this stuff up. No. So, you know, this local funeral director wants us to take his expertise over the likes of Dr. Fauci and a majority of the medical field and scientists around the world that saying wearing a mask is the best way to at least 
severely reduce the odds of contract, contracting coronavirus. Uh, he right. and his followers say, nope, let's just send the kids back, send the teachers back, send the administrators back, um, and just let the, the pieces fall. And I'll see may. them soon, he says. I'll see them soon. Oh, my gosh. That's just horrible. You know, I wrote a column about uh, this at goodfaithmedia.org on Thursday uh, entitled... Uh, kids in the coal mines. And the thing that really that I'm fearful of is that we are once again using our children as guinea pigs, sending them into this Petri dish of infection uh, and they're going to get sick and they're going to pass the virus on to teachers and administrators. And then that's going to, it's, it's not, you know, yes, we all understand that kids are less likely to contract the virus. Uh, but the reality is they can be carriers of the virus and they can spread the virus. And kids just don't stay in school. They go back home. Uh, they interact with their parents. They interact with their aunts and uncles and with their grandparents. So it is just absolutely irresponsible of anybody who holds a place of authority within education to suggest that mask wearing and proper precautions should not be implemented. There are examples right now in the states that we mentioned a moment ago that are considering reopening classrooms in a responsible way. And all of those include hand washing, distancing, virtual learning, and yes, mask wearing. Yeah. And I have seen children do it. They can wear masks all yep, day they long. Sure can. And it, I mean, they're, they're, they're remarkable. Uh, in fact, they're a lot better at it than adults are, if you want to be quite yeah, honest about it. Um, and so it's just, it's just absolutely asinine to suggest that uh, we send our kids back with, uh, with limited uh, precautions uh, to school. I'm just afraid that they are going to end up being canaries in the coal mine. I also just want to do a quick shout out to all the parents out there who are between a rock and a hard place mm-hmm. right now. I mean, right. we have four children. Um, I talked early on in our podcast um, a few months ago that my husband lost his job. Mm-hmm. Well, my husband now has a job that oh, he'll be starting. Yay. Yay. Um, he'll be starting sometime in August. And so we're going to be in a situation where we're going to have two working parents and four children under our roof. Mm-hmm. So, Yes, for the economy to resume, we need to get these kids back in school. I feel that more than anyone else. And that is why it is so imperative for us to do it safely. And if you're a parent trying to decide whether you're going to keep your kid home and virtually teach them and watch them climb the walls for the next semester, or you're going to send them where they can potentially get sick and bring a virus back to you, I just want to say I'm there with you and let's commiserate together. Yeah, absolutely. And I have not heard one person suggests that they do not want kids to return to the classroom for any other reason than the health and safety of everybody involved. As long as we can take these precautions, as long as we can uh, do this responsibly, and when there is flare-ups and when there is spikes, there may be a consideration to shut schools down again. But we need to feel comforted Uh, that our kids' safety is paramount. But the reality is everybody understands that our kids need to be back in schools. We want them back in schools, but we want it done properly and safely. Yep. 
Well, changing gears real quick before uh, we bring Anne in to interview her. Um, here at Good Faith Media, we had an incredible moment this last Tuesday. We launched our first effort at our Good Faith Forums. And the first issue that we addressed is racial justice with the, uh, the unrest, the agitation, the movement that is afoot in this country that is demanding social justice when it comes to, uh, to race and inequality um, is paramount on everybody's minds and in people's hearts. And so at Good Faith Media, we decided to, uh, to, to launch a Good Faith Forum on racial justice. And our board members, uh, Corey Jones, pastor at Tabernacle Baptist Church in Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, Starlet Thomas, uh, who works for the D.C. Baptist Convention in our nation's capital. And Terrell Carter, uh, who is chief diversity officer at uh, Greenville University in Illinois. All said, you know, we, we can lead a, con- a conversation, a productive conversation about these issues regarding racial justice and do it in a constructive and positive way, but also be honest about it. Uh, and, and really, uh, they did such a great job. Corey led the first episode on Tuesday, Joe Phelps, uh, Willie Francois, and Tanika Shepard were the panelists, uh, mm-hmm. just did a spectacular job. And, and you and I watched together, Autumn, what was your takeaway from the forum? I wish it could have been about three hours longer. Amen. Amen. I seriously, I looked up and 45 minutes had passed and I needed more. I think there's such a wealth of information and it's not, it's a heavy content, but the presentation of it was not heavy. It was in a very active voice. It was very, um, it was positive. You know, it's a negative situation, but there's no reason that we can't all band together. And I left feeling empowered. You know, we all have a lot of work to do. And if you are questioning what, where's my place right now in this movement toward anti-racism, the answer is tune into this series is a really good place to start and then move where the spirit takes you from there. Absolutely. And that was only the first uh, episode of uh, the Good Faith Forums. The second episode is going to air this Tuesday on Facebook Live at Good Faith Media's Facebook page. Two o'clock Eastern Standard Time, Starlet Thomas will be our moderator, and we'll have a wonderful uh, panelist uh, to talk about white Christian nationalism. So make certain you tune in. If you can't tune in on Tuesday, then you can go to our Facebook page and watch the entire episode later on in the day. So make certain you tune in. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Ann Nelson, author of Shadow Network. Ethics Daily and Nurturing Faith are coming together and joining forces to launch Good Faith Media. Is that not exciting? I am pumped. I'm so excited. We've been planning this and scheming and dreaming, and it's finally coming to fruition. We're really excited to roll out the new website, uh, hoping that everybody will get a chance to log on to goodfaithmedia.org starting July the 1st. But uh, there's also something we want to invite uh, a lot of our good friends to be a part of, and that is the Good Faith 50. So, Autumn, tell us a little bit about the Good Faith 50. 
The Goodie 50 is a group of our friends who want to support us. And our goal is to grow our monthly members, so our, our folks who donate to the mission of Good Faith Media, which is to provide resources and reflection at the intersection of faith and culture through an inclusive Christian lens. We want to invite the people who believe in that mission to become monthly donors. And our goal in July and August is to grow our monthly donors by 50. That is absolutely awesome. We welcome anybody who wants to be a part of the Good Faith crew in the months of July and August. And all they need to do is go to goodfaithmedia.org, hit the donate button, and then select to become part of the Good Faith 50 and a monthly donor at any level. And we would love to hear from you. And we appreciate, as always, your support. Your contribution helps us publish new articles each and every day. It also helps us uh, produce short documentaries and allows us to cover stories across the country. It helps us publish more books and provide more experiences for more people of faith. We are trying to advance a faith that is inclusive for all, providing justice for all, and freedom for all. So make certain you sign up on Good Faith 50 at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this uh, episode, we have a very special guest with us all the way from New York City, Ann Nelson. Ann is the author and lecturer in fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she's covered the conflicts in El Salvador, Guatemala, and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as Director of Committee to Protect Journalists in 1995. She became the Director of the International Program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Since 2003, she has been teaching at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, where her classes and research explore how digital media can support the unserved populations of the world through public health, education, and culture. And her most recent book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, details the strategic organization and influence that the religious right has had upon political policies in the United States. It is, in my opinion, one of the most well-researched and detailed accounts that I have ever read regarding this issue. So with that, Ann Nelson, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thanks very much. Yeah, we're so glad that you're here. Um, thanks again for making time to be with us. We started out every episode of our podcast that we launched in March um, by asking people the same question, and that is, how are you doing in this pandemic? Well, I'm, I'm, I've been in New York City, which has gone through a very terrible time, um, and and in April it was it was very difficult. There were sirens every five minutes, mm. and when I took a walk past my former office, there was a twenty foot refrigerator truck for the overflow from the morgue. Mm. Oh my gosh! And so it was very immediate. But I have to say, in my particular area, we have been very uh, conscientious about masking and distancing and the numbers have just gone way down and now we're just kind of hunkered down for the long haul until the vaccine well i just can't imagine what uh, your fellow new yorkers went through uh, during that uh, very difficult time where numbers were just uh you know just outrageous 
And so now we're seeing all these numbers spike in the South, Florida, Texas, uh, here in Oklahoma, even though we've got a smaller population. We set a record yesterday, almost hit a thousand new cases in one day, which is a large amount for the state of Oklahoma. As a New Yorker, what's your message for us people in the South, especially us people who, uh, who are refusing to wear masks in public? We're not refusing, right. but some of our locals are. Exactly. Well, you know, in New York, we were the first area mm-hmm. of the United States to get hit really hard, and one of the first in in the world in terms of these numbers. So to some extent, there was ignorance and a lot we didn't know about the virus sure. and, and about the protocols. So when you go through these desperate situations and I've lost several friends. Um, you say the, the only silver lining in this is if people can learn from our experience, Mm -hmm. right? We didn't, we didn't have that experience to turn to when we started going into it, but we've shown how, how devastating it can be, especially for vulnerable populations. And we've also seen how effective measures like masks and distancing and, excuse me, but just a little patience, Mm. right? Right. Sometimes Americans aren't very good at patience. They want it now. They want it all and they want it now. And we have to take care of each other. And this is how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're going to get into your book more specifically here in just a moment. But, you know, the book Shadow Network talks about this concerted effort by the religious right. And we're seeing that come to fruition during this pandemic. Uh, Vice President Pence uh, was most recently uh, attending worship service at First Baptist Church in Dallas and then another megachurch out in Arizona. It seems as though this shadow network that uh, works closely with certain politicians is trying to advocate that this is somehow um, a religious liberty issue by the government, whether it's local, state, or federal asking them and requiring them not to meet. Um, do you, I mean, with your, you know, your knowledge, your research, is this just falls in line with that, their strategy of influencing public policy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I really, you know, want to say that, that I have grown up in the Christian faith and I have had that connection my whole life. And I don't see where these policies are connected to Christianity as I understand it. Mm -hmm. When I read the words of Jesus, he says, take care of the children, take care of the sick, take care of the poor. And what I see, I mean, (laughs) I use an old fashioned word for this. I call it vainglory because when you're putting people at risk, by crowding them together without masks, without distancing, in order to celebrate the glory of a politician. Mm-hmm. That's just not how, what my Bible says to me. Um, so I feel that people are getting used. Right. I think they're getting lied to and I think they're getting used. Mm-hmm. If people want to worship, there are many, many ways to worship, many of them outside at a distance, right? Yeah. So. I, I wish that people would think harder about these things. Yeah, and very, very, very well said. Uh, and I'm, I think both of us concur with you uh, to a great degree uh, and echo those words. Now, 
moving to your book, Shadow Network, um, you talk about media money and the secret hub of the radical right. For uh, our listeners who may not be familiar with the radical right, I would say a majority of our listeners are. Uh, could you, in your own words, define what you are calling the radical right and maybe who the influential organizations and players are in this movement? Uh, sure. I, I came across this when I was was driving in Oklahoma and encountered some radio stations that were just putting out blatant misinformation that was cloaked in religious language. Um, and then as a researcher, I backed up and said, after a whole career of studying different countries around the world, I needed to study my own. And I found that there was a network of, of people and organizations. Uh, one, of the, one of the organizing factors is something called the Council for National Policy. And it brought together major donors, people with millions and millions of dollars, and political operatives, many of them from the days of Goldwater, uh, and media organizations. And what they wanted to do was to take control of the political system, even though they understood they would not have an actual majority of voters. Mm -hmm. So starting in 1981, uh, in this organization, uh, They've pursued a number of tactics very effectively, most of them legal, uh, and, and seized much more power in this country than others thought would be possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a fascinating read. And uh, I mean, I just thank you for the, the detailed research that you did uh, in uh, publishing the book. Uh, all of the names, you, you don't hold back, you name names, you call, you call out organizations. And so if you really want to know what's happening behind the scenes uh, in this uh, shadow network of the radical right, I certainly encourage you to pick this up. I would say that in initially, I have to say, I thought that this might be kind of a local phenomenon because as it happens, there are many people from Oklahoma involved in this mm -hmm. movement, but also Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, um, and then I found that they had really come together and united behind Donald Trump in June of 2016 and really made a pact with him that said outright, you may not be a man of God, but you may be an instrument of God if you will give us what you want. Like Balaam's we'll donkey. Trump is Balaam's donkey. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they, they called him Cyrus, the <laughs> king of Persia, right? And uh, in fact, the, I, I went to some of their meetings and I got a little fake gold coin that has a profile of Cyrus and a profile of Donald Trump right oh on it. Oh my gosh. Oh yes. Oh wow. yes. Uh, so that's what they did. And, you know, and in terms of Christianity, uh, you know, you kind of say, okay, there are people who talk the talk and people who walk the walk. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump has never been one to walk the walk. Right. And frankly, he has a little trouble talking the talk. Sure. <laughs> the vocabulary does not come easily right. to him. No. But they made this arrangement and, and it's been transactional politics. Yeah. They brought voters to him many of them through mechanisms involving churches 
And many times lying to the congregations. That really bothers me. They say, oh, Democrats like to execute babies on the day of their birth. They call it birthday abortions. And that's simply not true. Right. But there are many people who believe it because their media and their pastor's organizations uh, are really pushing these lines very, very powerfully. And what I also talk about in the book is how in many of our, our towns, the hometown newspapers have died mm -hmm. or have lost all their circulation and people aren't getting accurate fact-based news in the same way they used to when I was growing up. Yeah. So, so this misinformation right. comes in and fills in that vacuum. Yeah. And you pointed out in the book about Sinclair Media and their influence across the country. Uh, you know, Sinclair's, uh, I can't remember how many stations they now own. Uh, John Oliver actually did an incredible piece on them a few mm -hmm. months ago, uh, just lining up verbatim what all of these oh, it's spooky. commentaries. It's propaganda. Oh my gosh, it was so, so terrifying. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think Autumn's got a question for you. Speaking of spooky propaganda, um, <laughs> I grew up in deep red Texas. I think the soda big red is actually a euphemism for the whole state of Texas. <laughs> um, we have pockets of purple these days, and I'm really proud of that. Um, but, you know, the church and state line where I grew up is very blurred. I learned the Pledge of Allegiance at the age of four in the Haitian Bible school as I pledged to the flag, pledged to the Texas flag, and then pledged to the Bible. Um, I always thought that was and, weird, by the way, even as a kid. Right? <laughs> Like what's what's going on here? I mean, same, I, I read same. the Ten Commandments, and then they say, "Hey, you got to pledge allegiance to all these, you know, idols." So it's just like that doesn't square with me. So I'm sorry, I'm good. Yeah, it was legitimately an idol. No, I'm right there with you. <laughs> same same wavelength. Um, so, and the only way you can love Jesus is to vote Republican. That's the message. Mm -hmm. So, what kind of harm, in your opinion, has been done with this marriage between the religious right and the Republican Party? Well, first of all. I, I, I do fault the Democrats because I think they lost the capacity to communicate with religious voters. Amen. I agree with that. That's why we're here. That's good faith media. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Because religious voters are there and many of them think and search their souls about how to vote. And, and as America's population moves to the coast and becomes more diverse and more secular, um, the Democrats have understandably turned their attention to those populations, but I think a lot of people feel left behind mm -hmm. and left out. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think this is a question of intention, but inattention. Uh, so, so that meant that when the Republicans came to them and really courted them and poured a lot of resources to, to evangelical voters in these states, they, they found an audience that didn't have anyone else really competing for them. Right. And in the book, I talk about how somebody like Ralph Reed and the strategist said, oh, here's 18 million evangelical voters that are not really engaged and they're ripe for the picking, mm -hmm. right? We'll figure out how to surround them with our information and cultivate them and get them to the polls. Um, and a lot of people in the United States don't really know how to read elections, I have found, because they're looking at national polls. So right now they could say, oh, Biden is know, X points ahead, double digits, right. but they're not looking at the swing states. 
where the elections are actually won or lost. So in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the national vote by 3 million. She lost the Electoral College by only 80,000 votes in three swing states. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of them she didn't even campaign in, in Wisconsin. Right. And that's where that mistaken focus uh, has, has, has distorted our, our political reality. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting, and you bring up an, an excellent, excellent point, and that, you know, there was this time in the life of the Democratic Party where they shunned people of faith or religion, even though some of them, you know, held to religious beliefs. It was though there was this misunderstanding of church-state separation that uh, somehow your faith could not influence your politic. Uh but, you know, trying more recently, we have discovered that both parties, and we know the religious right has cultivated much more so than the Democratic Party, but both parties have now understood that people of faith across this wide spectrum uh, let their faith dictate their conscience, and in that conscience, they vote for public policy. They will vote. Uh, according to their theological interpretation or their interpretation of the Bible and their theological outpouring from that interpretation. And so what's been fascinating to me at Good Faith Media, what we're attempting to do is to let our faith guide us and not, and certainly not endorsing any party over the other, but to really give an honest assessment of what the scriptures say, in particular, what Jesus says and how his words, how his life, how his example should influence us, not only on a personal level, but very publicly when we go into the voting booth. Uh, We are part of a community and Jesus taught us that. And so whether that is that ends up being uh, associated with a political party then so be it. But the reality is we want our faith to drive who we are. Uh, and what we're seeing uh, in both parties, to some extent, sometimes contradicts our faith. And we have to be prophets to both. And one of the things that we've continued to say, one of the best examples we have seen of this in the last hundred years was the civil rights movement. We think Dr. Mm-hmm. King and his colleagues were able to stand at that wall separating church and state and be prophetic to the state saying these are sinful, evil deeds that's happening in the South and across the country and they need to cease and there needs to be legislation to cease these humanitarian, uh, the humanitarian crisis that's evolving. And so that's kind of what we're attempting to do at Good Faith Media. And, and, and in your expertise and your travels and your research, are you finding that there is, because for so long in the public square, the radical right has dominated the conversation when it comes to faith. But are you starting to hear echoes of opposition to that voice uh, being sounded out, saying, hey, there are other people of faith, there are other perspectives, there are other issues that we're concerned about. Uh, hey, listen to this message. Yeah, I, and I think those voices have been there all along, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you have you have voices of conscience coming from the from every religious community uh, in in the country, but they're not always amplified, and they're not always amplified in certain places. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the Jewish faith, there's this, this beautiful phrase, tikkun olam, to heal the world. And that should be your goal in life, right? Mm-hmm. To help God heal the world. 
Um, but, but that's not going to be amplified in every state in the country. And I think that what has happened is that some people have, have seized the megaphones, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll take, they'll, they'll run these focus groups and they'll find a hot button issue. And if they twist the facts a little bit, they can get people very upset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 the birthday abortion is just right. one example of that. Sure. If you convince people that somebody's out there really massacring newborn babies, you can get them understandably very upset. The only problem is it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a fact. So then what happens if you move the lens of our attention away from other things? One moment for me was when I met with a, a leader, a, a, a legislator in Oklahoma, who was very upset because they'd cut the taxes for the oil companies, which were very, very wealthy. And it meant that disability services in Oklahoma had a waiting list that went to 12 years, mm-hmm. right? So here you have a disabled child who is 12 years old before they get disability services and parents struggle with caring for, you know, what would Jesus have to say to that? Right. Right. The the, the neighbors are not, you know, helping people with this enormous challenge. They're turning a blind eye in order to fatten the coffers of oil companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who's paying attention to that? Who's who's broadcasting that? Whose who's megaphone does that live in? Mm-hmm. So I think so much of the importance for, for the media, for the churches, for thoughtful people is to widen their perspective and really see their neighbors and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, you, what you said is so truthful because you know, in the book you write about the Council for National Policy and it's amazing how much, how many resources are behind these this concerted effort to change public policy and to reduce taxes and to limit government. Um, you know, you mentioned Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers, the National Rifle Association, and so many others who are a part and working with the Council of National Policy. Were you surprised as you wrote this book and compiled your research? at the amount of money uh, and the resources and how large this network really goes to influence national policy? Yes, it it became overwhelming. Mm -hmm, But it also became, you know, as a writer, I try to get inside of the head of everybody I write about. I Mm -hmm. try to understand their motivations. And in this case, I failed Mm. because you have one of the Koch brothers who goes from having $52 billion to $53 billion. And that seems to be very important to him. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And he'll go through all kinds of conniptions to increase his wealth by that measure. You say, how does your life change between 52 billion and 53 billion? Mm -hmm. How many houses can you experience? How many jets can you ride? Mm -hmm. What, what, but in the meantime, that billion dollars could go for these disabled children. Oh my gosh, it yeah. could go for these struggling parents. It could go to pay teachers a decent wage. It could do so much good for people who have so little. Mm-hmm. Whereas with you, it's just numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So, so get, wrapping my head around that is something I still struggle with. Yeah. Wow. 
So what can people of good faith do to combat this really well-funded and strategic effort that's jeopardizing our democracy? Well, there are a lot of good efforts out there, um, and it depends on what they want to offer. They can look at, at political candidates at every level, whether it's school board all the way up to president, and say, who is introducing a platform that really helps our neighbors and the least among us? Mm-hmm. Right. Look at look at the platforms, not just for the, the slogans, but what they're actually trying to do. Um, they can be supportive of local officials who are doing that good work. I also think what I see in, in these movements again and again is, oh, we're very generous to our own. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, there's even their own Pledge of Allegiance, which is with liberty and justice for all who believe. And of course, that's not how Jesus yeah. worked. Right. The Good Samaritan, I mean, you know, the tax collector, mm-hmm. he, his heart was for everyone. It sure. wasn't just, you know, the, the 12 apostles and, and too bad for everyone else. Right. Yeah. So I think that getting to that vision spiritually and politically and connecting those two is part of it. Um, I think paying attention to our political system and voting and getting people you know to vote is incredibly important. I think educating our young people and saying, look, it's your future. Mm -hmm. And if you're not engaged and if you're not informed, you're surrendering your future. Mm -hmm. Right. I think also the other thing that's super important is supporting your local news media, the professional news media, the hometown papers, the, the NPR stations that have local news, not all of them have much, but some do. And, and just trying to be informed about what's going on in your community and the state house, as well as, as in Washington, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's an initiative called vote values, which is trying to, to have a conversation about, about voting with conscience. So, so there's, there's a lot on deck that can be done. Well, those are great suggestions. And especially this year, 2020, uh, this is a year like I don't think any of us have ever experienced before. Uh, thank you know, goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. Hopefully we'll never experience again. Uh, not only a global pandemic. I heard just moments ago that we've reached 3 million confirmed cases here in the U.S. Uh, it's, it's just blowing out of proportions in California, Texas, and Florida, like we've already stated. Um, and also this incredible uprising demanding racial justice uh, in our land uh, after the, the deaths of uh, Armand Aubrey, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the list goes on. And then why not just go ahead and throw a presidential election uh, on top of that in 2020? Um, with everything that you have gleaned from your research and the book, do you see these this network, these organizations attempting to influence the 2020 elections, not only the presidential elections, but for Congress, Senate, local races. Do you, I mean, the pandemic has slowed us all down. Has it slowed down these organizations or are they still working as hard as ever to, to achieve their goals? Well, they're working very hard because they understand that they've got a short timetable. And if the Republicans lose both the White House and the Senate, there will be some major changes. I would, I would firmly expect uh, 
a, a new government, a new administration to come in and say that the billionaires in this country should not be hoarding the wealth of this country when the bottom 50% are struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the billionaires benefit from the tax money everybody's paying. They use the roads, they use the educational system, they use everything. And and so this, this incredible situation with income distribution, which is the most extreme it's been in, mm-hmm. in many decades, mm-hmm would be changed. But the people who are functioning from a place of greed don't want to see that change coming. So in terms of what they're actually doing, their media is going full force. They're telling people that the Republicans are patriotic and the Democrats aren't. Uh, just, Just the other day, Tammy Duckworth, who lost both of her legs yeah. in the military, was told that she's not a real American. Saw that. And that. it's rather shocking that that conversation can even be happening, but it is. Do you think in the, uh, this rhetoric and this approach, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, and but yeah. this approach, do you think it, it's, it's a, a legitimate, or not a legitimate, but a a deliberate attempt to draw these lines as though they were you're supporting good versus supporting evil. We are good. Everybody else who doesn't support us is evil. Well, I think that they're actually trying to play on emotion Mm -hmm. and the people who are running these operations are actively trying to deprive Americans of public schools, right? Mm, yeah. They're trying to deprive public schools of, of funding. They're trying to deprive teachers of adequate pay because they want kids to be going to institutions or being homeschooled where they're not exposed to these different ideas. Same thing, they wanna cut money from public colleges and universities. They don't want people to read the newspaper and to listen to network news. They want them inside their information bubble where they won't be exposed to different ideas and they won't be exposed to facts and science. So they're saying, oh, distancing and masks aren't a problem, you know, so on and so forth. And the numbers of the epidemic show that, that these are problems and that people are paying the price in tragic, tragic ways. But they want to, to provoke these feelings of tribalism. You're with us, right? And you're emotionally with us. And you will be stirred in your spirit at these big rallies where you feel like you belong to some kind of club, but you're not thinking with your head, right? right. You're not reading and informing yourself and responding as an informed citizen the way the founding fathers were trusting that we would do, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times they're even voting against their own interests. We saw that in Oklahoma. We expanded Medicare coverage and it was our, you know, our more urban spaces in Oklahoma who were the only reason it passed. All these rural places that it was clearly going to be serving them voted no. Mm-hmm. But that's where I see this information deficit going yeah. because I have to think that if these rural areas, you know, my, my mom lives in Oklahoma and she went to the clinic last year and this lady told her, well, 
I don't care if they get rid of Obamacare. I've got ACA. <laughs> right. Right. Bless. Of course, they're the same thing. Bless, she just didn't know it. As we say in Oklahoma, <laughs> bless her heart. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. <laughs> and my Goodness. mom came back and said, what, what do you say to people? <laughs> <laughs> Please don't vote. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, well, Anne, you have been an absolute delight uh, to, to talk with and visit with. Um, in each and every interview, Autumn gets the last question, and it has to do with our tagline here. So, Autumn, I'm going to let you uh, ask your famous question by now. Perfect. Well, and before I get to that, we will have links available where people can learn more about your work and your book. Um, so if you're interested, just go to um, the notes in our episode. So our motto at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of everything that's going on in the world right now, what is your more to tell? Well, I, I would I would also mention that um, I'm doing lots of updates on my reporting from Shadow Network, and I put them on Twitter at a Nelsona. So if anybody's interested, well, that in, as well. Mm-hmm. Great, that's great. Uh, and uh, in terms of more to tell, I'm I'm a writer, and my next to last book was about. Christians and others in Nazi Germany who organized a resistance movement against Hitler. Mm -hmm. And my last book was about a woman in occupied Paris who organized a rescue network for Jewish children from, from the concentration camps. And I think my next work will continue to take me deeper into the heart of America and our history and the relationship of our faith to our history. It's always an exploration for me. Um, But what I didn't really expect was this exploration of of faith. Uh, I live in a pretty secular world, pretty secular environment, but it's, it's been something rich and it's, it's, a conversation I really value and believe it or not, I kind of go around and remember the old gospel songs I grew up with, you know, and, and it, it, it gives me you know, a lot of times people say, Oh, your book, you know, your reporting is so uh, shocking and it's really depressing. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it shouldn't be depressing. It should right. give us purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, those Christians in, in Nazi Germany Oh my goodness! They were facing an mm-hmm. adversary that was was brutal. Right. All we had to do is is you know get up and vote. Mm-hmm. Right. We got all the instruments of democracy in our hands. Yep. And so, I take inspiration from people in the past, and I also look forward to to exploring this conversation with all kinds of people in the future. Well, Anne, I just, I couldn't say any better. Uh, That is so inspirational. And yes, go out, engage, vote, be a part of this democracy. It's the only one we have. So uh, let's, uh, let's be a part of it. The book, Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, authored by Anne Nelson. Anne, thank you so much again. And we appreciate you being with us today at Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much. For all of you who are listening, thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. And as always, we want to wish you good faith.